Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. I am so happy that you are joining me for the second hour of our program. I don't even care the circumstances. If you're listening to me while you're incarcerated in prison, thank you for letting this be a source of truth and light. If you're listening to me while you're, uh, you know, sitting home with time on your hands, either forcibly unemployed or just unfortunately unemployed because of all the shutdowns, I'm glad you're listening, and I hope that you find some encouragement in the things we talk about. And if uh, if the world is your oyster, and maybe you're listening to me aboard your yacht as you're sailing in the uh, South China Seas. You know, we are on this uh, remarkable worldwide app, the Loving Liberty app, also on a thing called, I think it's radio.garden. Anyway, you can pick us up pretty much anywhere worldwide, but uh, whatever circumstances you're in, thank you for being a part of the show today. And uh, we have a lot of great stuff to cover in this hour. I want to talk a little bit about uh, the concert coming up a week from Saturday. Pushback is starting to pick up for this Colin Ray concert in Kaysville, and uh, Mayor Witt, Katie Witt, is taking a lot of heat right now, and I was, I guess I was mildly surprised, but not terribly surprised to see the latest hatchet piece, not from the Salt Lake Tribune, they got theirs in a few days ago, but from the Deseret News, which used to position itself as kind of the voice of reason, not as reactionary, not as shrill as, as the Salt Lake Tribune. And I'm going to kind of be all over the road here as as I uh, try to, to bring some focus to this. A friend sent me something from, from Facebook this morning. It's snarky, but there is a degree of truth here, so I want you to bear with me as I share this with you. Larry Correa is the one who wrote this, and I'm going to have to censor a little bit because he uses some salty language to get his point across. But I think there's truth in what he's saying, and I'm, I'm particularly going to apply this to the woke scolds and some of those within the, the traditional media who think it is their job to, uh, to put the rest of us in our place. He says, there is an immutable law of the Internet where the more someone's personal life is a complete dumpster fire, the greater the odds that person will blunder onto your social media pages to try to boss you around. It's never the people who are squared away and successful who are wandering in to scream at you. When you check out the person making the shame attempt or concern trolling, inevitably they turn out to be an utter failure at life, huckster con, or dim-witted loser dip-dunk. And whatever the subject is they're trying to lecture you about, that subject is almost something it turns out that they are utter crap at. Like if the topic is business, economics, or financial in nature, in nature rather, then their page is Bernie memes and complaining about how they just got fired from Taco Bell again and a link to their GoFundMe begging for rent money. If the topic is scientific or medical in nature, then after they lecture you about how much they freaking love science and you need to get educated, half the likes on their page are for psychic mediums. He says, no crud. I just had that one this morning. And he says, there has to be a mathematical formula for this. The more likely one is to not have their crud together, the greater the odds they'll eventually show up on my Facebook feed to bark at me. Now, I know, on the one hand, we're all thinking, man, <laughs> he's right, man, these people who show up and bark. I- I'm sharing this with you not so much to-, to condemn those people whose lives are dumpster fires, who feel the need to go around and complain and boss everybody else around. I am sharing this from the standpoint, uh, starting with myself, that you and I need to be careful that we're not those individuals. 
You've heard me say before, and I believe with all my heart, before you go ordering the world around, get your own house in order. And if that means getting your own heart in order or your own life in order, then so be it. That's probably something that we should be working on in the first place. But we have no right to go telling everybody else this is how you should live your life when uh, we're lacking in many areas ourselves. Self-improvement is the surest way to persuade people that this is a person worth listening to. It's that power of attraction, that power of example. And it also says a lot when, you know, you're not asking people to do something you yourself aren't willing to do. So going back here to this outdoor concert planned for May 30th in in Kaysville. Now there is some organized opposition against the Kaysville mayor calling for her resignation over this planned concert. It's the Alliance for a Better Utah, which uh, if if I'm remembering correctly, the Alliance for a Better Utah are the ones who uh, got us saddled with SB 54, which uh, drives a dagger through the heart of the caucus convention system. This is kind of the, uh, hey, let's preserve the powers that be, you know, and let's let's preserve the power structure as it is to make sure that uh, those in power get what they want and the people uh, can be convinced that what those in power want is really what we all want. In other words, it's it's a special interest group, and it's very much concerned with maintaining the status quo in that we want our people to retain power. Anything that it has to do with your well-being or my well-being, well, that's just a happy coincidence, shall we say. But boy, they are mad and they are pushing for Mayor Katie Witt from Kaysville to resign after she opened up the city to a free outdoor concert a week from Saturday in conjunction with the Utah Business Revival. Now, of course, the Deseret News, in their totally non-biased, fair and balanced way, calls them activists opposed to restrictions brought on by the COVID-19 pandemic. Okay, there's a little bit that needs correcting in that sentence, and you're welcome. I'd be happy to do that for you. Activists opposed to restrictions brought on by the COVID-19 pandemic? No. Activists opposed to restrictions of essential freedoms. Not just the ability to gather and go have fun or play volleyball, but to go out and work, to provide for your family, to care for one another, to worship And they weren't brought on by the COVID-19 pandemic. They were brought on by power-hungry politicians, power seekers, and opportunists who saw an opportunity and decided to jump on it with both feet. The pandemic was just the excuse. The power-hungry actions purely, totally, politicians and bureaucrats doing what politicians and bureaucrats do best seizing the opportunity to get more control and more power for themselves. Now, Mayor Witt expressed support for the concert in a press release issued last week by the Utah Business Revival, which is sponsoring the event, asking residents to come be a pioneer and patriot with us. Pretty radical stuff, right? I mean, after all, those pioneers were they were a brave bunch. We're going to go into this more in just a moment. But there are those questioning her motives. Oh, look, and it's people with political goals who are questioning her motives. Chase Thomas, executive director of the Alliance for a Better Utah. Well, the major concern is that an elected official is using her power to do something dangerous to her community and those who live outside of it, too. According to whom? And, and, and quantify that. I mean, that's quite an accusation. She's, she's using her power to do something dangerous to her community. Like what? Let them exercise their own personal responsibility? 
Oh, Chase Thomas says, well, her support of the concert seems to be a blatant disregard for her constituents' health and well-being. Yes, because keeping them locked up like they're on house arrest as they slowly go into unrecoverable amounts of debt or financial devastation is a far wiser thing to do, especially if they are young and healthy and not part of the high-risk groups that we associate with being at greatest risk risk for coronavirus. Oh, and of course, he says, the timing of Witt's decision appears to be political because she's currently running for Congress in the 1st Congressional District. Let this be a lesson. You cannot stand for something without paying a price. You can't. And the fact that they would assign political motives, I'm sorry, that's a greater indictment of the people who are currently criticizing Mayor Witt than it is of her. She's doing the right thing. She is stepping back, keeping government out of the way and not exacerbating an already intolerable situation. And then State Senator Todd Weiler, predictably waddling up to get his moment in the sunshine and in the spotlight, took to Twitter to call for her resignation, saying she's abusing her office to generate free media in her run for Congress. This publicity stunt from the mayor who collected parade chairs placed too early because rules are rules. Oh, Todd must have had a parade chair out there that got taken away because he put it out there the night before. Eric Mutsos pointed something out, too, in this article. This was I thought this was a very curious spin on the part of the Deseret News. Again, in its fair and balanced approach of objective journalism, for which it is well noted. They quoted him, actually misquoted him as saying the concert is an opportunity to show the world that people can gather safely in large groups without any spikes in COVID. Why is this wrong? It's not what he said, first of all, but it's wrong because we've already had ample opportunities, at least twice before, where people gathered safely in large groups, and we're talking more than a 1,000 people, and there was no spike in COVID infections. So it's not like, well, this is going to be the opportunity to prove whether or not that's true. It's already been shown to be the case at least twice before. So don't be discouraged. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about some perspective. How frightened we are versus, say, a person who was born in the year 1900. It's a very interesting exercise in that if you think about what somebody went through, through a, an average lifespan, if they were born in 1900, versus what we are going through right now, you're going to wonder where they found all their courage to keep going on, because, brother, they saw some pretty heavy stuff. This is Loving Liberty. We'll be back in just a few moments. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty, 801-331-8113. You are invited to join the conversation. Assuming that you're not listening to the podcast, but instead catching the live broadcast on KTALK 1640 or over the Loving Liberty radio network. Seriously, toll-free, at least it should be toll-free pretty much from anywhere in the world, 801-331-8113. Okay, try a little mental exercise with me, if you will. I want you to imagine you were born in 1900. And what I'm asking you to consider is some of the things that a person who was born in 1900 would have experienced over the course of an average lifespan. So when you're 14 years old, World War I starts and it doesn't end until your 18th birthday with 22 million people dead. That's pretty big, right? 
Later that same year, a Spanish flu epidemic hits the planet and runs until you were 20. 50 million people die from it during those two years. Yes, 50 million. When you turn 29, the Great Depression begins. Unemployment hits 25%, global GDP drops 27%, and that runs until you are 33. In fact, the country nearly collapses along with the world economy. At age 39, World War II starts, but you aren't even over the hill yet. When you turn 41, the U.S. is fully pulled into World War II. In fact, between your 39th and 45th birthdays, 75 million people perish in the war, and the Holocaust kills 6 million. When you're 52 years old, the Korean War starts, 5 million more people die. Approaching your 62nd birthday, you have the Cuban Missile Crisis, a tipping point in the Cold War. Between 64 and 65 years of age, that's when the Vietnam War begins, and it doesn't end for many years. Four million people die in that conflict. Life on our planet as we know it could well have ended. It's not until you turn 76 that the Vietnam War fully ends. Okay, now we've been through some rough stuff, right? But think about everybody on the planet born in 1900. How did they survive all that? A kid in 1985 didn't have to think about the fact that their 85-year-old grandparents and now great-grandparents survived everything I just laid out for you. So this isn't to suggest that, you know, hey, everything's a cakewalk right now, but it is a little bit of perspective. Let's try to keep things in perspective. And above all, if you learn anything from this, it's that in the history of the world, there has never been a storm that lasted. Eventually, the storm always comes to an end. Think about the courage it took to go through World War I, the Great Depression, World War II, Korea, Vietnam, all of these things. Maybe our challenges are going to be even greater. We don't know. But I think the point is well taken. Humanity has been through tough stuff before. We'll probably face further challenges in the future. We've got to find some courage. And this is not the time to be acting like slaves. Thomas DiLorenzo is a very gifted writer. He's also the guy who wrote the book that is probably the single hardest book that I have ever read about Abraham Lincoln. Because I was raised, like most of you, on, you know, Lincoln is uh, this saint. He was one of the saints that walks among us. And he's just deified as he's the man who saved the country and and abolished slavery. And, you know, just was was so great in every sense of the word. And I read uh, I read DiLorenzo's The Real Lincoln quite a few years ago. And if you've never experienced cognitive dissonance, wow. This is a book that will give you serious cognitive dissonance. It will, it, because you will find yourself going, how can I hold the thoughts that I have been trained to think all of my life regarding Abe versus some of the things that uh, historian Thomas DiLorenzo points out that just don't jive with that, that saintly image. Now, I want you to know, I have softened my take, at least in the sense that um, I think Abe did some really horrific things that have cost all of us over the years. I think he's the guy who actually stabbed federalism to death. I think federalism ended in any effective way at Appomattox in 1865. However, I also think the guy was was aware of the mistakes that he had made. I think he was remorseful for them. I think he actually paid a pretty high price for it. John Wilkes Booth, you had a hand in that. 
So I, I don't hold a grudge in the sense that, uh, you know, I don't I don't gasp his name out between, you know, spitting bits of hate every time I think about him. But uh, but I don't worship the guy and I don't look at him as, you know, yeah, greatest president of our of our country's history. So Thomas DiLorenzo has a pretty interesting take on a lot of stuff. And particularly, I like his latest essay about America's totalitarian ruling class and its willing slaves. He says, if the corona cold virus calamity teaches us anything at all, it is that with few exceptions, America's political class is overwhelmingly dominated by fascists and totalitarians. Now, he says, I speak, of course, of all the governors, mayors, city and county council members who've taken it upon themselves to declare that their words are law and to use the heavily armed police forces at their disposal to enforce their, quote, laws. The Morticia Adams-ish governor of Michigan has become the face of today's fascist totalitarian political class. Now, he reminds us real laws are passed by Congress and state legislatures and are signed by chief executives. None of the stay-at-home orders are laws. They are the mere words of politicians and bureaucrats. And he says, nor are they based on science. In the true spirit of Abraham Lincoln, who arbitrarily redefined treason from its Article 3, Section 3 definition of levying war upon the free and independent states, which he was guilty of, to criticizing himself and his policies, the political class has not amended, but simply redefined the Constitution to mean whatever words come out of either sides of their mouths. This reminds the author of an old movie, The Island of Dr. Moreau, in which Burt Lancaster portrays a mad scientist who experiments on animals that he makes part human. Whenever he says, he, whatever he says is the law by virtue of his having said it. Well, America has become one big island of Dr. Moreau's hiding behind their titles of governor or mayor. The Bill of Rights does not say that we have inalienable rights to freedom of speech, assembly, and religion unless people get sick, after all. But Tom DiLorenzo says, alas, the Constitution has essentially been a dead letter for generations. Americans have long lived under the Hamiltonian Constitution, which is whatever politicians of the day say it is. Jefferson's strict constructionism was abandoned essentially at the end of what we call the Civil War. This fact is why almost all who are attracted to politics as a career today are totalitarian-minded thugs. They get into politics precisely because they want to wield this monopolistic totalitarian power against their fellow citizens, who they often despise and hate publicly labeling them with words such as deplorable and much worse. Now, there are a few exceptions, of course, the most magnificent of which was former Congressman Ron Paul, but they're the exceptions that prove the rule. And he says, I speak of the entire U.S. Congress, the U.S. Department of Justice, and virtually the entire judicial system, every member of whom has remained as silent as a church mouse while the rule of law in America was swept away in a mere six weeks. Think of this the next time a conservative Republican in Washington pretends to be devoted to the Constitution. He says the American public lost control of the federal government when the rights of secession and nullification were abolished in 1865. And he says John C. Calhoun was right when he explained in his disquisition on government that a written Constitution would never be enough to control and restrain legal plunder. Some mechanism that could be utilized by the people of the free and independent states organized in political communities was necessary if the central government was to be the servant rather than the master of the people, he said. 
Now, naturally, Calhoun is one of the most demonized political figures in American history by the American ruling class. Then came the deification and glorification of the Lincoln dictatorship, which turned into the deification of the presidency in general and all of its executive powers, mostly unconstitutional dictatorial powers to wage war, enslave citizens through conscription and everything else. Federalism was destroyed by the Civil War, after which the states became mere franchises or appendages of the central government in Washington. He says the federal government was turned into one giant monopoly of the worst kind, one from which there can be no escape once it acquired the, acquired the powers of money printing and income taxation. Are you feeling a little cognitive dissonance yourself? Okay, it wouldn't be surprising. We'll come back and finish up Thomas DiLorenzo's essay in just a few moments. This is Loving Liberty. Trusted voices of truth and insight. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. 801-331-8113 is the number. Brian, you may ask, why are you pulling our strings? Why are you trying to cause discomfort? Okay, I won't I won't say that that is my goal is to make you uncomfortable, although I would understand totally if this essay from Thomas DiLorenzo, Americans to America's totalitarian ruling class and its willing slaves, if it was making you uncomfortable, I understand why uh, cuz it makes me uncomfortable too. But one of the reasons I'm sharing it is because I believe it's a message that has to be said because what we are facing today is if it's left unchecked, if someone doesn't find the courage to stand up and say, this is wrong, this cannot be allowed to proceed, it is going to be real deal totalitarian tyranny. And it is in some places. I think we have a chance to turn it back, and I think that we should know why it's important that we do so. And so I share these things knowing that it's not going to make everybody feel good and warm and fuzzy, but it still needs to be said. All right, let's open up the phones here, 801-331-8113. Hi, welcome to the show. Is Nancy Pelosi a whack job or what? I suppose to some people. I honestly, I don't, I, don't get, I don't let her live in my head. She doesn't matter to me. She's a politician. Well, she matters to me because I pay her salary. And I, I have to, you know, when, when I have someone that's unproductive on my payroll, I'd like to, you know, get rid of them. Well, I, I think you have the right idea in the sense that she is an employee rather than your boss. So, yeah, yeah. If, if she's an unproductive employee, by all means, there's yeah, the door. She's costing the, com- she's costing the company lots of money, what she's doing. Okay, so tell and, me, what's uh, what's? Uh, it sounds like specifically, though, you are frustrated with her. Um, there's lots to choose from, but what has she done this time that uh, that has provoked oh, I, your I ire? Just heard that re- I just heard the report that she's concerned about the president taking hydrogen hydrochlorophyll why is, and, and she's why is that her business what, the hell is it, what, is, what business is it of her yeah. what he does no uh, i i'm with you uh, it's yeah toxic levels of self-importance but again you'll find this in most politicians so yeah well i i, I gotta say the people that vote for her I, I i i don't know i just don't understand it but uh yeah as far as this uh mayor 
what is it, the mayor having in Kaysville having the concert? Um, she has just put her support behind it. Said yes, you know, Kaysville would be a wonderful place to do this. Good honor, good honor. Yeah, I think, uh, I think she's making a good decision. This whole COVID nineteen is a that the people I talk to that have to deal with it that work for some of these big corporations, they are sick and tired of it. They don't want to do it no more. They're almost tempted to quit their job. It's, it's pathetic. They got to wear the face mask. They got to do all these things that are out of their normal protocol. It's mind-boggling. But, yeah, the people are being enslaved, and they're going along with it. That's and it. Just, uh, Bingo. And that's that's why I'm willing to step out there and, and embrace some really uncomfortable topics like this one, because uh, I, I don't want to see us uh, go further down that road. Yeah, I mean, it's... Uh, Nowhere near what they thought it was going to be. I bet they're having fits over that. Yeah. Well, uh, you can see it because, well, you know, we have to wait a little while. We've got to make sure it's going to be absolutely safe. And it's like we've had time to understand that the people who are at greatest risk, we know how to minimize that risk to them. Let's just proceed from there and let everybody else get back to work. Yeah. There, what, what did the one caller say on the shows this morning? I believe it was or the day before. We were 1.9 million off, or 1.6 million off on the numbers that they predicted that we're going to die from this. Yeah. I mean, you know, here, here Nancy Pelosi's worried about because it wasn't scientifically, uh, you know, uh, tested the hydrochloroquine and FDA approved. I guess you ever you ever stay up late and watch all the commercials of of all the stuff that the FDA had approved, <laughs> and now it's gone backwards on them. And right, all the, class, all the, the class action lawsuits. If you took this medication, you may stand to get part of the settlement. What? What are people thinking? Oh, anyway, I love your show, man. You know what I love about your show the most? When you, when you try to, you know, when you, when you uh, mimic some of these politicians and, and some of these people that think they know better than you do for your own self it, it's comical I love well, it, i'm a smart anyway, i'm a smart keep, elegant heart so thank you thank you for indulging me <laughs> keep up the good work take care man thanks for the call 801-331-8113 i know it's childish guilty as charged i want to come back here for a moment to thomas de lorenzo's article He says the temptation to be one of those chosen few to yield such totalitarian powers is what causes the worst elements in society to pursue careers in politics. By the way, F.A. Hayek explained this beautifully in The Road to Serfdom. And DiLorenzo says long gone are the days when public spirited citizens could serve in Congress for a few years, their behavior constrained by the chains of the Constitution, as Jefferson once said, and then returned to their private lives. In fact, he says, uh, your author used to have a quotation on his office door from Ringo Starr, of all people, that said, everything government touches turns to crap. No truer words were ever spoken. The inevitable failures of government. Did the Centers for Disease Control succeed in controlling the coronavirus disease? Elicits a typical response from politicians ramp up their their totalitarian dictates, as so many of today's governors are doing at the moment, after the original dictates proved to be failures. As Hayek wrote, they would have to choose, they would soon have to choose between disregard of ordinary morals 
and failure. It is for this reason that the unscrupulous and uninhibited are likely to be more successful in a society tending toward totalitarianism, end quote. And DiLorenzo says that latter phrase is a perfect description of what America has just become in the last few months. Hayek wrote this in his famous chapter 10, Why the Worst Get on Top. But he says, remember, the worst don't do it alone. They have to have help from a large segment of the population that assists them in making them their own de facto slaves. And that takes a large group, wrote Hayek, in order to present the appearance of legitimacy to the state's totalitarian powers. Hayek said the perfect kind of of large group, moreover, is large enough to, quote, impose their views on the values of life on all the rest, will be those who form the mass in the derogatory sense of the term, the least original and independent. Thus, the totalitarian fascist will be able to acquire the support of all the docile and gullible who have no strong convictions of their own, but are prepared to accept a ready-made system of values if it is only drummed into their ears sufficiently and loudly and frequently. In other words, we're all in this together. We're all in this together. We're all in this together. It will be those whose vague and imperfectly formed ideas are easily swayed and whose passions and emotions are readily aroused who will swell the ranks of the totalitarian party, wrote Hayek. And Tom DiLorenzo says you see people, these people every day all over America. The man driving alone in his car wearing a face mask. The couple out walking on a windy day wearing face masks and scurrying off whenever they see another human being. Those who answer opinion polls in the affirmative when asked if the lockdown should last at least until a vaccine is, is available. The people giving you dirty looks at the grocery store or complaining to the manager that you're closer than six feet. By the way, a friend of mine this morning had the cops called on her, taking her daughter in for an MRI. And when she went into the medical office, they insisted she put on a mask because she wouldn't put on the mask. They called the police on her. By the way, the the police did not take the bait. They didn't arrest her. They didn't ticket her. How far do you have to depart from reality to think, well, you know, she's not doing what we told her. So I guess we should call the cops. The skillful demagogue, Hayek continued, understands that it's easier for people to agree on a negative program, on the hatred of an enemy, on the envy of those better off, that's the essence of Marxism, than on any positive task. In the Germany of Hayek's youth, it was the Jew who had come to be regarded as representative of capitalism. German anti-Semitism and anti-capitalism spring from the same root. And Tom DiLorenzo points out the U.S. government is constantly fabricating another Hitler, whether it's Manuel Noriega, Saddam Hussein, Gaddafi, the Sandinistas, Putin, and myriad others. Even slicker, however, and a higher level of demagoguery altogether is to define the enemy as something like terror or the invisible enemy of a virus that no one seems to understand. Such things can be made to appear to be as common as the air that we breathe, literally in the case of viruses, so that waging war against them and the never-ending grabbing hold of more government power and the abolition of whatever's left of freedom can simply go on forever. But he says the docile and gullible do not spontaneously arise as supporters of the fascist thugs who now rule over most of America. They're cultivated by the political system. The political ruling class of any country is always a tiny numerical minority that can be swept aside by the masses who number in the millions. Therefore, the state has an imperative to make at least a majority of the masses into docile and gullible serfs. 
And by the way, it does this by monopolizing all aspects of education. I'll have a link to this essay in the show notes. I really recommend check it out. And if you like it, share it with your friends. This is Loving Liberty. We'll be back right after these messages. All right, we are back. This is Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. If you need to talk me off the ledge, I realize I've I've gone off on a bit of a tear this hour. That's funny. Normally I get it out of my system in the first hour, and this is my, uh, you know, more affable, kicked back, a little more uh, relaxed hour. But no, man, I'm I'm wound up like a watch spring for some reason today. 801-331-8113. So my daughter in Germany... Brooke, I love you, and I love your sense of humor, which I think you probably inherited from me. Uh, she sent me a, a, a cartoon, a couple of people having having a conversation. One is the uh, NPC. This is the uh, the gray person, the uh, non, what is it, non-something player, NCP. Anyway, you should wear a mask even if you don't need one, and this person is wearing a mask. To which the person they're talking to says, sort of like carrying a gun. And then comes the scowl. <laughs> so I, I want to talk about this uh, in, in the context of there's an article that was published on fee.org. That's the Foundation for Economic Education. Why gun rights are essential in a world of uncertainty and scarcity. This is from Aaron Tao and talks about how firearms are the most practical and effective way for the average American to secure his or her life, liberty and property. And he starts with a common joke in the American gun community that goes something like this. Why do you carry a gun? Because carrying a cop is too heavy. Now, he says this humorous quip should not detract from the fact that many individuals in the United States, including him, own and carry a firearm for purely pragmatic reasons. The simplest case for the right to keep and bear arms can be summarized in one sentence. You are ultimately responsible for your own safety and security. Now, this sobering pill can be difficult for many people to swallow, but that's reality. Evil exists in this world. Under the right circumstances, people can and will do unspeakable things to each other, as any student of history or psychology will know. Those fortunate enough to live in gated communities and can afford armed security are often oblivious to the fact that most other people do not enjoy the same luxuries. Now, Aaron Tao says many violent crimes take place and are over in a matter of seconds, or stopped in seconds that prevent the worst. Another popular way of saying, uh, another popular saying rather says, when seconds count, the police are only minutes away. So in the United States, depending on where you live, police response times range from nine minutes to over an hour. Right now, one in five New York police officers are currently out sick due to COVID-19. Police in multiple states have announced they'll no longer respond to theft, burglary, and break-ins. And given the current climate, it's not unreasonable to assume police will take much longer to arrive, if they do at all, should someone dial 911. Furthermore, he says Americans need to understand there is no legal obligation for the police to protect you, which is affirmed by the Supreme Court and multiple lower courts. And he names the cases as links to them. Should the police fail to arrive or protect you when needed, You can't even sue for neglect. So, given the legal and logistical realities, taking the initiative to protect yourself should be as sensible to any other as any other proactive measure like having a fire extinguisher in your home or jumper jumper cables ready in the back of your car. Should disaster strike, 
Preparedness will make all the difference in the world. And Aaron Taos is protecting your one and only life deserves no less preparation and investment, especially in our increasingly complex and uncertain world. He says Americans are fortunate to live in a country with mostly stable institutions, but there are vivid examples when segments of society break down, many in not-too-distant memory. In widespread disturbances like the 1992 L.A. riots or the aftermaths of Hurricane Katrina, Florence, and Harvey, authorities were overwhelmed and unscrupulous individuals took advantage of the chaos to prey on others. Going by sheer numbers... He says almost all of us will encounter at least one black swan in our lifetime. The current COVID-19 pandemic and its aftermath are already the most trying times on the lives and livelihoods of Americans since the 9-11 terrorist attacks and the financial crisis of 2008-2009. Should an even deadlier natural or man-made disaster take place? If the authorities haven't been incapacitated, displaced, or destroyed completely, whatever personnel and resources are left will be prioritized to protect high-ranking government officials, their inner circle, and critical government facilities and infrastructure. And so he says, the economist Thomas Sowell reminds us the first lesson of economics is scarcity. There's never enough of anything to fully satisfy all those who want it. Security also happens to be a scarce resource. There's simply not enough boots on the ground that can guarantee all 300 million Americans will be protected at all times from all threats. In every emergency, tough decisions will have to be made. And he says, from what we know about past and present continuity of government plans, ruling elites will be evacuated to a secure bunker in some undisclosed location, while John Q. Public will be left to fend for himself. Now, every American school child is taught that everyone is equal before the law. So Aaron Taus has given this fundamental axiom, it's not unfair to demand that the average American citizen have access to the same means of security and protection that government officials who are our servants, not overlords, insist on having for themselves while using taxpayer money. Under the American political system, the right of self-defense cannot be limited to only a privileged few. No one, regardless of their socioeconomic status, can deny fundamental rights to others. And then he points out that this right to life is closely intertwined with the right of self-preservation. And I like that he brings John Locke into the conversation. Locke, as you recall, was a major influence on the philosophical foundations of the U.S. Declaration of Independence, as well as the Constitution. This is how he described the right of self-preservation as a fundamental law of nature, in his second treatise on civil government. John Locke said the state of war is a state of enmity and destruction, and therefore declaring by word or action, not a passionate and hasty, but a sedate, settled design upon another man's life, puts him in a state of war with him against whom he has declared such an intention, and so has exposed his life to the other's power to be taken away by him or anyone that joins with him in his defense and espouses his quarrel. It being reasonable and just, I should have a right to destroy that which threatens me with destruction. For by the fundamental law of nature, man being to preserve as much as possible, when all cannot be preserved, the safety of the innocent is to be preferred. And one may destroy a man who makes war upon him, or has discovered an enmity to his being, for the same reason that he may kill a wolf or a lion. Because such men are not under the ties of the common law of reason, have no other rule but that of force and violence, and so may be treated as beasts of prey. 
those dangerous and noxious creatures that will be sure to destroy him whenever he falls into their power. End quote. I mean, that's a mouthful. But you can see what he's saying, right? The innocent, the people who have not victimized anyone, the ones who have not initiated force on anyone, should not suffer to have force initiated against them. And they have the right to defend themselves. Now, just because hardly anybody dares to do it doesn't mean that that right doesn't exist. Aaron Tao says the political philosophy of John Locke and other Enlightenment thinkers contributed to a unique element of American political theory. Fundamental rights do not come from the government. Human beings possess them already simply by virtue of being free. And that includes a pre-existing natural right of self-defense and self-preservation. As the Declaration of Independence memorably emphasizes, these natural rights are unalienable, meaning they cannot be taken or given away. They are permanent and apply in all times and all places to all human beings, with or without the Second Amendment or any other statutory pronouncement. Self-evident truths and other similar conclusions are also found in other schools of thought. The ethical intuition, intuitionist philosopher Michael Humer also highlights an interlocking relationship between the right of self-defense and the right to own a gun. Quote, it is possible for a right to be both fundamental and derivative. Now, derivative rights are usually related to fundamental rights as means to the protection or enforcement of the latter, though this need not be the only way in which a right may be derivative. He says, I claim that the right to own a gun is both fundamental and derivative. However, it is in its derivative aspect as derived from the right of self-defense that it is that it is most important. So even without the existence of absolute rights, which humor declines to acknowledge for guns or any other right, he nevertheless persuasively argues there is strong prima facie rights. There is a strong prima facie right to own a gun and prohibiting private gun ownership constitutes a major interference in the gun owners plans for their own lives as well as a significant violation of the right of self-defense. Now, there are other forms of self-defense as well, and uh, Aaron Tao goes into this in his article, but he says, look, I am confident new gun owners will learn how to handle their weapons responsibly, that they'll discover the joys of shooting and become future staunch defenders of the Second Amendment and hopefully the rest of the Bill of Rights as well. He points out that our past is full of inspiring examples of Americans emerging stronger and freer after overcoming crises that tear the fabric of society and test our ideals. So he says, in these times that try men's souls, let us not forget the precious legacy bequeathed to us. This is great stuff. I really hope you'll check out this article. It will be in the show notes when I put this up for podcast in just a few moments. 